0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, good morning. Let's turn to Obadiah. All right. We got some good talkers. All right. Um, As you're doing so, I just want to both welcome those who are visiting us today, uh, regular attenders and those that are at home. Uh, we miss you at home, uh, we desire for you to be here, we need you here, we love you, and we'll continue praying for you. Obadiah, we will be in verses 15 and 16 today, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 16 together. As you're turning there, I just want you to know that I feel a little bit holier today than normal, um, and I don't mean more divine or sanctified, I mean holier, uh, because during that last song, I lost a filling. Um, so I just singing along there and I realized, I'm like, uh-oh, so if you do saw me stop singing, it was because I was figuring out how to put it up my upper lip, like chew, and uh, keep on going. Um, so I was a little holier, and um, we'll see how this goes. I know what I need to do in the next couple of days. So that's—I just want you to—I just want you to bring everyone in on what's going on in my head as well. Yeah, you—you you can't know. Just wait. It's actually back on that seat. I'll bring it to my dentist. <laughs> Obadiah, don't anyone take it. I need that, please. <laughs> All right, let's look at Obadiah 1 through 16. We'll read together the prophecy that he has given to us from our God and learn. Obadiah 1 through 16, this is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, I have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, an understanding out of mount esau and your mighty men shall be dismayed o t man so that every man from mount esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother jacob shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof on the day that the strangers carried off his wealth and the foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for jerusalem you were like one of them Of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we come before you today, eager to hear your word asking that you would give grace, that you'd go before my words and prepare our hearts to hear you. or may not get in the way, but rather would you use these humble words to speak the truth of Obadiah, our brother who had a vision from you for us, for Judah, for your people, for all the earth. I pray then, God, that you would help us have humility, Lord, that you'd work faith in our hearts and graciously change us to be more like the image of your dear son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's work, and I pray that we would humbly receive this time, that we would taste and see that our Lord is good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, My wife, Kristen, was a nanny for several years in high school, and uh, one of the children that she watched, uh, a young young boy, uh, came up with a a phrase that I end up finding myself using uh, not too often, but in, in select situations I think it's helpful. He wasn't necessarily a troubler or anything like that, he wasn't necessarily disobedient, but he would give her a difficult time sometimes when, he would, when she would ask him to do something that he didn't want to do. And he would ask this question, why? What is the reason? I, everything has to have a reason. Now I use this same phrase when speaking to my wife and she tells me to do something I don't really want to do, as you can see why. Um, but it's, it's pretty cute, right? Like It kind of gets catchy, but it kind of highlights something for us that is true. It does expose a truth for us. This little boy wanted to know why he was supposed to do the thing he was called to be doing. It kind of exposes the truth for us. People usually want to know why they're doing what they're doing. It's not universally true necessarily, but most people, when they find out what they're doing, they want to know why. And when they do, it helps them to take care of that task well and to move forward properly. So I want to start off today just asking a few questions, some purpose questions here. The first one, why are you, and you don't have to answer, it's okay. Why are you here this morning in this worship service doing what you're doing? Uh, There may be several different reasons in our congregation. Uh, Some of you have to be here with your parents. They are leading and loving you in that way. But most those that have come here voluntarily are here to worship God, to love Him and extol Him and praise Him. So my next question is: Why do you worship God? What's the purpose of what, why do you worship Him? Well, you probably say something like He's the King. He's worthy. He's the giver of all good gifts. The worthy of our thanksgiving and praise and all that He is. I just ask one more question then: What is the most precious gift that we need so badly. And you may think that's maybe some kind of a, a trick. like, there's, there's too many gifts to, to mention, Chris. There's so many different things that God has done for us, but at least it has to do with something with being reconciled, God and man, and something like my salvation before God as he has made these people his own, as he's performed this task of making us into the image of his dear son. And to this, of course, I'd say, amen, that's right. J.I. Packer, in writing the foreword in John Owen's book *The Death of Death in the Death of Christ*, reduced Owen's entire theological masterpiece into three beautiful words: "God saves sinners." If you don't take anything today, but that, hear me clearly: God saves sinners. We worship God, and we thank God. And we continue on to persevere toward God and we love him and we, and we enjoy God and we live for God because of this truth, the truth, this glorious truth that God saves sinners. It's why you and I gather today, not in sobriety and somber and make everything dark as though something bad is happening. We're hoping we can get enough favor from the things that we're doing to please God. We come here rejoicing in the risen Son of God who has saved us by His great love. We're a, in a sense, I'm not trying to be goofy, we're a happy, joyful people because we know who we are and what we actually deserve. Besides, of course, the glory of giving us Himself, His greatest gift is the work that He did to redeem us from our sin. In that sense, He solved our major problem the divine wrath of God against our sin. We glory in the cross because the results are so spectacular. They have taken people who are deserving of God's judgment and made them sons and daughters of God. We have been given faith. We have had the eyes of our heart enlightened, as Paul says. We are those who have inherited an incalculable treasure. We rejoice in the God who gives these gifts today. It's all because our Lord Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, and death by taking our judgment upon himself. Now, why did he have to do that? You know, as the little boy would say, what's the reason? Everything has a reason. Why? Was there really a need for Jesus to put on flesh, live, and die? and ascend to the Father's right hand? Why would God do something so immense and deep and painful? Krista and I were talking about this the past week, and she pointed me back to the garden. I think she's exactly right about this. I didn't understand it at first, but as I worked through it, we're simply pointing back to the devastating effects of our rebellion against God. We recognize that Christ must come that God foundationally put this in the beginning, before any problems happened, that he would send Jesus Christ, slain from the foundations of the earth, to die for sinful man. God saves sinners. We look back on this event as Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God. Think about the situation, the beauty, the benevolent nature of a God who gives of himself, gives and gives, and brings them into a relationship where they are truly his children. When they are reliant on him for everything and have sweet, beautiful fellowship. And in the midst of that, this beautiful relationship, what do his children do but commit treason? Betrayal. Turn their back on what he asked them. Instead, decided to go their own way. They disobeyed the one who loved them. And what were the outcomes of this treasonous act? This betrayal? You and I know It's called the curse. It's called total depravity, complete sinfulness, and the fact that all men, all men died in Adam. In short, we recognize that we need Jesus Christ because of divine judgment against sin. As we work through the book of Obadiah, we may be tempted to believe that God is really only concerned with really wicked people. I mean, that's what the whole first part is all about, pointing out how wicked these people are. I mean we, we read the description of Edom, and we rightly think we don't really look like these guys. This, 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 they're not our struggles exactly. Like, we, we, we're not perfect, but we're not like Edom. I mean, we haven't done violence to our brother in this way. We haven't stood by in hostility or stood aloof when they were in danger. Uh, we didn't gloat over their misfortune. We didn't trespass his city or loot his goods or all these things during the day of their calamity. We didn't even, just, just, I, unless someone needs to tell me something, we haven't like captured refugees and sent them back to their captors as far as I know. We haven't done these things. So when we think about these things, and compare our own actions to the actions of Edom. We're not really like Edom. We're just not in the same ballpark even, it seems like. So should we really be concerned... About Edom's judgment personally. But that's what I want to ask us. Why, really, I'm kind of getting down to why in the world are we looking at Obadiah? Are we just talking about history? Am I just trying to note a few things that have gone on throughout the, the, the nation's history and all that's going on to kind of fill in all of our understanding? Or is it possible that there's something more important for us here that actually matters for us? Our text today helps us to understand. We must answer this question with a very serious yes. This is for us personally, and I'll explain how. Let me read. We're just going to cover two verses today, verse 15 and verse 16. Let me read them. For the, Lord, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Now up to this point, we've watched Obadiah take us through a conversation that God is having concerning Edom, the way that he is speaking to Edom, the descendants of Esau. It's a prophecy concerning Edom's sin and the judgment that will come to them. If you remember back in verses 2 through 9, God promised that Esau's defeat was inevitable. It was going to happen. More than that, it was thorough and complete More than that, it would actually strike at the heart of all the things that they trusted in, their friendships and alliances, their resources, their natural fortifications and positions, even down to their wisdom and personal strength. Then in verse 10 through 14, we saw the evidence for this judgment. We covered this last week. Esau had committed ultimate betrayal against Jacob by doing violence to him. He stood by and even helped while the Babylonians captured the city of Jerusalem and took them into exile. Last week, I briefly touched on verse 15 at the end of our time to help us understand the horrendous act of treason had violent consequences for them. We talked about the law of retaliation. Remember that? Lex talionis, pointing back to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or more maybe we know it better in the New Testament in Galatians 6, the law of sowing and reaping. We saw it clearly in verse 15. If you look there, it says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. I mean, it's pretty clear here that Edom will be judged for its sin. But did you notice that we jumped past the beginning of that verse? I want you to go ahead and look at the beginning of this verse. What does it say? For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now, we've been talking about Edom this entire time, and all of a sudden he switches to talking about all of the nations here. Why would Obadiah bring this up? Isn't he talking about Edom? Well, yes, of course, but it's it's important that we see this prophecy is starting to show itself not only for the sake of one of their enemies, Edom. There's something bigger, more important going on in this larger context. The prophecy of Obadiah is set in a larger context that we cannot forget about. It's here in verse 15 and 16 that Obadiah brings us in to that larger context. Obadiah has just told us all the things that Edom should not do, right? Look at this. He said, do not gloat, do not rejoice, do not boast, do not enter the gate of my people, do not loot his wealth, do not hand over his survivors. He's just told us, not, or told them, not to do these things. And now we get the reason why. Verse 15, 4 the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. What he is doing is rooting all the commands that we just saw in verses 12 through 14 and therefore the judgment that is coming in verse two through nine and he roots all of that in the unmovable truth that the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. This is like the, the common denominator. We gotta understand this. This is the unmovable truth that says, yeah, they're definitely going to be judged. We understand this and this is why. In case you have any doubt, let me let you know this is about judgment. This concept of the day of the Lord isn't new. You've probably heard of it, or at least read it when you were working through the scriptures. But let me explain a little bit. The prophets will often use this term, day of the Lord, to describe a time period in which God, in which God will no longer stand by, letting humanity operate as if there is no God in heaven. When a prophet refers to the day of the Lord, He is telling them about a future time, very near usually, a future time when Yahweh would finally intervene and would establish in the world His sovereign rule and justice. The day of the Lord is the day of divine intervention. And it's not done by just any god. Let me explain. It's not the word El or Elohim, like the the generic word for God here. He is talking about Israel's covenant-keeping, steadfast love God, Yahweh, their covenant Lord. It's right for us to say the day of the Lord, that's fine. But what we're seeing here that it is tied directly to the God of Israel, the one who is over all, the one who abounds in steadfast love and the covenant-keeping Lord. It is named then the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Therefore, he is the one that sets the rules. It's the Yahweh that sets the rules. He will be the judge. Israel's God is at the center of all of this. He will make all things right. This is both talking about historical events of God's judgment, but also about the inevitable end of all unrighteousness when Christ returns to defeat all his enemies, judge the world, and bring salvation to his people. And we know that he has already begun this work at the cross. The day of the Lord is a day, though, of divine judgment So at the beginning of verse 15, Obadiah says that this day, this time period of judgment, is near upon all the nations. So yes, you're hearing that correctly. It's not just about Edom. No, the bigger picture shows us that God's wrath is against all the nations. But not only that, he says it's near. Uh, You've seen this. In other words, he says it could happen any time. It's that idea of imminence. It's right next to us. We don't know when he will execute justice. We don't know when he will judge the nations. They don't know when he will decide that enough is enough and take action. But we do know one thing. He will do it. Almost every time a prophet talks about this day, he uses this word near or at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. He's calling for immediate repentance because no one knows when the day of the Lord will come. What else do we know about this judgment? Do we have anything else that we need to know? Well, yes, I, I want to point out a couple of things. There's a startling truth that we're going to uncover in verse 16. But before we get there, let me explain the imagery used here of drinking. You'll see it there in verse 16. Actually, Jordan already read part of this passage, or John read this passage at the beginning, Psalm 75, 8. Let me read it for you again. For the hand of the Lord there is a cup. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. The imagery here is of wine that makes a person unable to do what they're supposed to do. Drunk, out of control, at the mercy of whatever the drink that they've imbibed causes them to do. This is what's happening in verse 16. He says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so so all the nations shall drink continually. Now let's stop for a minute. As Bible readers, I want us to pay attention. Who is he talking about here? Up to this point, God has been speaking to Edom, right? We know that, to the descendants of Esau. We can all agree on this part, but it's at this point I want us to ask, is he still talking about Edom in verse 16? What he's doing is making a comparison. Do you see that there? He's making a comparison saying, just as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink. In other words, it says the one side of the comparison is supposed to help us understand the other side of the comparison. We know that the imagery is clearly about judgment, but if we think about where we're at in this prophecy, we don't know anything about them actually having been judged yet at this time. And it certainly, even if they are, it wasn't on God's holy mountain. Now, just for, for a minute here, God's holy mountain referred to Zion, or we would know it as Jerusalem, where God's presence is dwelling with his people. We see this in Psalm 2, Psalm 74, and Isaiah 8. But overall, we understand when he refers to my holy mountain, he's talking about Jerusalem. So Edom hasn't been judged on God's holy mountain. So what is going on here? Uh, this doesn't make sense when we want to figure it out. It can't be that Edom has already been judged. And even when they were, it wasn't at Jerusalem. Another possibility then for us, this is we're just kind of trying to make sure we can make some sense of this. There's another possibility here. It's that this first drinking done by Edom is a drinking of celebration over Israel's defeat. Like when they went through and they stole and they gloated and they rejoiced, they got drunk on their happiness of making sure they could overtake this land. They did this in Jerusalem over their brother. But I'll just say that doesn't make any sense to the idea of the comparison that's used in this verse. That would mean then that the other nations are supposed to be doing that kind of rejoicing, that kind of drunkenness. And it's very clear the second half of this verse is all about destruction. So what is going on here? What's the solution for this? It seems difficult. When you're reading your English translation, I'm sorry, but you and I missed something. It's impossible to catch here. There is a change in the grammar. Up to this point, God has referred to the people of Edom with the second person singular verbs, you. Just stick with me. I know it's grammar, but you can do this, all right? He's been using the you, talking about second person singular. But then in verse 16, the only place he switches over to the second person plural, y'all. Now, we don't see that in our ESV. He doesn't say y'all here. But what he's doing is using the second person plural. So the question is, is it possible then that he is changing his address from God speaking to Edom to someone else? In a sense, is it possible that Obadiah is now turning to Judah? God's people, at this point, his readers, his listeners, and he speaks to them. Is it possible that in verse 16, God is referring to his people? I think that's exactly what's going on here. You have to follow me here and stay with me. Something we may not remember is that God's wrath, this cup of wine, was not only meant for the nations. I want you to listen to Isaiah 51. I'm going to read a few verses, starting with verse 17. Wake yourself... "'Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. "'You have drunk from the hand of the Lord "'the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, "'the bowl, the cup of staggering. "'These two things have happened to you. "'Who will console you, devastation and destruction, "'famine and sword? "'Who will comfort you? "'Your sons have fainted. "'They lie at the head of every street "'like an antelope in a net. "'They are full of the wrath of the Lord, "'the rebuke of your God.'" This wrath is not only for the Gentiles. This judgment comes upon all those who will not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. It will even come then to his own people. They will drink of the cup of the wrath of God. And we know historically this happened in Israel, the northern kingdom. It happened when Assyria came, took them over, and took the people to Assyria to exile. We know in the southern kingdom, in Judah, it happened when Babylon came in around 587, took Jerusalem, destroyed it, and carried the inhabitants off to exile. We know if you read 1st and 2nd Kings and you read this time period that the judgment of God on his people was terrible. It was awful. Wicked things are happening. And the reason for this judgment is that they were an unfaithful, idolatrous, idolatrous people who had stopped worshiping Yahweh, their God who had stopped loving their husband. Remember Hosea's conversation about Hosea and his wife, which stood for God and his people? The unfaithfulness of his people? This had brought the wrath of God. They were not worshiping him. They loved the creatures of these other gods more than they loved their creator and their covenant Lord and husband Yahweh. Now, if we step back a little bit, originally the people of God saw the day of the Lord as a good thing a day of light and celebration when he would make all things right and people would rejoice. But as we find in Amos 5, God's people hadn't taken their own sin seriously. They were trusting in their blood, in their lineage, in who was their father. A common problem, if you remember the Apostle Paul, many years later deals with the exact same thing. They hadn't realized that their sin against God qualified them for judgment just like everyone else. Listen to Amos 5, 18 through 20. He says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and not brightness in it? Now listen to verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. Obadiah is referring to the very judgment that Judah is enduring in Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians in 587 when they took them off to exile. And then he's using it to compare the judgment of all the nations. Let's read verse 16 in its entirety again. For as you, Judah, have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. God is telling Judah that the nations will drink of the wrath of God just as they had drunk of the wrath of God. But the nations get even more description here. There's even more going on. They will be judged as Judah was, but it will be done continually. Then keep going. They will be judged like Judah and drink of God's wrath, but they will drink and swallow. They will be judged like Judah and drink of God's wrath, but the result will be that they will be as though they had never been. What does this mean? I want us to take this seriously here. This is talking about the final work of God to bring all things in heaven and on earth together. It is making all peoples to be his people. I'll say that again. This is bringing all peoples to be his people. One people. This means the total destruction of all who defy the God of all creation, the God of Israel, Yahweh, This is truly doom and gloom for all those who will not repent and trust and rejoice in their God, Yahweh. So, my question, if this is all true, if what we're seeing in this passage is true, all this is happening, we're seeing that God judges his people with the same judgment that is for all the nations. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Lex Talionis is not for the Gentiles only. We talked about this last week. The principle of reaping and sowing is universal. So then we rightly say, because we're starting to get freaked out here, what about the promises of Abraham? What are the promises that were made to David about his household and all that God would do? What would God's wrath be the end of the nation of Israel? Or would true Israel survive this judgment? I stopped short in Isaiah 51. I'm going to read it now. Let me read verses 21 through 23. He says this Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. Is he faithful? Will he do all that he says? Will he bring justice? Will he be sovereign over all things? Because you know what? When we look around at our nation right now, the country right now, we watch gross injustice. We see things that in our lifetime may never be answered. Problems that we can't solve. We want to and we can't. There is a promise that God will bring this cup to the hand of the tormentors. God's promises are true. He will not do away with Israel forever. He will purge them of their wickedness. He will judge them for their unrighteousness. But he will preserve a remnant, a seed, a people who will fulfill the promises that God has made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, and so on. In verse 16, we realize that no one outside of God's people will be saved. I want us to clearly understand that the center of what we're doing here is a difficult thing to swallow. God's judgment will be on all who sin against him. They will end in complete destruction. But by the very fact that the comparison has been drawn, we know that Israel, true Israel, God's people, will be saved. Hang on, because we're going to start to get into verses 17 through 21. Not today, but we're going to get there. Verses 17 through 21 is going to help us. We're going to see hope and the nearness of God's grace and glory. We started with some questions this morning, though. Why are you here? Right? We need a wheezing to understand what's going on. Why do you worship God? What did he do that was so great for you? Guys, is it not the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord? Do we not rejoice today because this is what we deserve? We we still deserve. You realize that it doesn't change. The only thing that stands between us and the wrath of God is Jesus Christ who took that wrath for us. This is glorious and joyful as we respond to Him who has outpoured grace. We are people of, if I can say this way, happiness. We know what we've been given. We understand what we deserve, and God has not only forgiven our sins, as though now he's made us neutral, and we hope that we're going to get better, but given us his righteousness, given us his Holy Spirit, goodness gracious, he's given us his revealed Word, so that we might know him There is forgiveness and grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people today who walk around with smiles on our faces in the midst of struggle, not because it's fake or phony, that don't, don't, let's make sure we get that right here. Suffering is awful and terrible, and we live in a broken world where tears are appropriate. I'm talking about today that by faith, by God's grace to us, we understand that our eternal security and happiness is done and sealed in Jesus. And so there can be forgiveness for sin. What are you struggling with today? Is it too much for Jesus Christ to forgive? Did it not put him on the cross, and did he not pay for that sin? We ought to live in joy and thanksgiving. In a sense, I know that I'm preaching doom and gloom from this passage, but it points out the immense sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we glory in the cross. We glory in our Savior and what he has done for us. I ask you then to glory in Jesus Christ. It's the essence of God's work to save some men that he would choose. We stand forgiven. We rejoice in God and all that he has done for us. In a sense, we are all the nations, but God has acted. If we're to look at other places, we're also to see, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, even the remnant of Edom will rejoice. There will be those that he even brings to himself. This is great rejoicing for us. We deserve judgment, but God in his grace, if we trust him, that he has given us his faith, that we will find life in Jesus Christ. If, though, If this morning you have no idea what I'm talking about or you recognize that you don't love the Lord God with your heart, soul, and mind and all that is within you. He is not your king. I would call you friend, please repent. Love this God. He is a God of joy and willing and gracious to give forgiveness in Jesus Christ and all good things. This is a good message for us. Because of him, we can have safety security and blessing and true and lasting joy because of all that Christ has done. And so this morning, it is him that we proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love in Jesus Christ. We know what we deserve. We are a sinful people. But God, we look to the cross and we rejoice recognizing that any future work done on our part is only ever strengthened and given to us the ability to do so by your Spirit's work and power. We thank you for it, and we ask that we would live in rejoicing, that we would hate our old lifestyle that hated you, that was idolatrous, but rather, Lord, that we trust you and love you. I pray, God, that you would save many that would hear the message of Jesus Christ, that they do not have to have judgment. They can turn from their wickedness of their sin and love you, and find true, lasting joy. We thank you for forgiving sinners. We glory that God saves us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.